we are. We're back. We're back after one year, one year and a half. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. I haven't checked. We've spoken since then, but we haven't recorded anything. Yeah, yeah. It might have been, I think, January or February. No. Autumn 2000. No, spring. Spring 2020. So, but let's, uh, let's get into the main topic for today, which is AI in education. That's right. So, you said that this is going to be your next challenge. You want to dive into... You want to get into the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I've already started maybe a shallow dive into the rabbit hole, which is, um, which was basically spurred on by the release of GPT Chat. Because I come from the, um, my, my previous research has been in this sort of virtual reality um, space, immersive learning technologies. It's a little bit similar to when the HTC Vive came out, or, or maybe even like, I guess, the Oculus Rift, the first one. Maybe the DK2 I tried, and I put it on, and I'm like, oh my goodness, this is really something that might be transformative. And I was probably way too, I, I underestimated the amount of time it would take to sort of reach mass, mass adoption or not even reach mass adoption, but have a serious impact on education. And I have the same feeling now related to AI in education, but rightfully or wrongly, I don't think I'm going to overestimate the amount of time it's going to take for AI to impact. I think it's already begun. As soon as ChatGPT was released, I feel like a lot of things have changed in particular, something things like around academic integrity, the viability of giving students um, essays to take home, things like this. So I don't know how to how to sort of tackle the problem, but but what was your feeling? You mentioned that you had a feeling that was similar when you had the chance to try out VR. What is uh, would you would you say something more about this? Is it is it like that you felt like amazed? You felt like uh, well, this is going to be a game changer. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, just quite literally. The fi- I, I, some of the first experiences I tried in VR. One example is the blue, which is you know years old now, and this is where you're transported underwater into like these animals swimming past you and things. It said something to me that okay, we really can manipulate reality in almost any way we want with this, and in the classroom. That's infinitely valuable. Why is it so? By providing realistic, expe- realistic-like experience, real experiences that are feel real, but they're not, to be able to put learners in situations where they need to face particular challenges or experience particular emotions. And I think my imagination of what was possible is was well ahead of what in reality would happen due to technological sort of limitations or just the desire or the need just because we can create an entire universe where somebody might be able to learn a foreign language or practice a foreign language by interacting with you know avatars who who who, who who was speaking the foreign language, the target language, or, or so on. doesn't mean somebody's going to build it or somebody's going to try to build it or there's a desire to build it. You're now, you're now talking about VR, right? The feeling, the, the sort of, the sort of uh, 
you know, thoughts or images that you had uh, w- when you got in contact with uh, with with VR. And 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 how about now with uh, with AI? Because you mentioned actually a problem, you know, when when AI is used uh, to automatically write uh, or draft uh, essays, the students are supposed to deliver for passing courses. So it seems quite quite different then, or or what? How would you? Yeah. So although there's some parallels between the the, the feeling that I had, there were parallels, but there's also differences. I mean, in, uh, firstly, another parallel is the fact that VR had been in development since the 70s in one way, shape, or form, and the same with AI since before the integrated circuit. People have been discussing this sort of human machine. I think even since the 50s. Since or... the 50s, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first one is basically Har- Herbert Simon, and there are actually a few clips of the man himself talking about how he came up with the idea of artificial intelligence as an application to human cognition, of course. We're not talking about the technicalities of the, of the thing. Yeah, basically, since the, 50s, since the 50s, although the applications are much more, much closer to us. Yeah. And so I guess there's this parallel trajectory where there's a technology that has the potential to change the way we live and learn. And then there's what actually happens in practice. And I've been interested in AI for for quite some time, also from an ethical perspective. And there's a, there's a, there's a, Tim Urban writes this blog post, blog, sorry, called A Wait But Why. And he did a whole series on AI and AGI and things like this. And... Sam Harris also has a podcast and he sort of addresses issues related to and maybe even a TED talk related to the threat of AGI. So for for quite a few years, I've, I've been interested for, from a cursory perspective, nothing from our academic perspective, just as a layman interested in, in, in the technology. And I guess I do and have for a while seen AGI, so artificial general intelligence, as a, as a real threat to, to humanity in the future and something that we need to work on related to the alignment alignment of a AGI's goals and the, the goals of humanity. And I guess if you sort of look at that from the perspective of education, just to bring it back to the point about, you know, giving students essays to write at home, there's an there's a threat to to similar to what happened when Google came along where people could just chuck into Google and just sort of like find our answers without necessarily doing the work that previously we thought was necessary to do in order for them to learn the stuff students will be able to just ask a chatbot you know summarize summarize this topic you know the role of the role of photosynthesis in the production of citrus fruit whatever you want factual knowledge yeah. precisely and creative yeah. something creative as well it's not only factual if you are tasked with writing a um fictional narrative about you know you you could you could quite easily also put that in there so i don't think it's the end of education as we know it i think it's like we just like we have in the past we just need to come up with methods to address the the new technology and actually take advantage of it i think it's going to be a boon for for teaching and learning as opposed to this terrible thing, but we have to, you know, we have to take care. But it's interesting that your entry point in this case 
in the case of artificial intelligence is is something that you are painting as as threatening or there is a, sure. a threatening element and you also mentioned Sam Harris uh, he's is quite skeptical I'm also a little bit quite skeptical I must say about AI perhaps because be, because I studied the history of AI the 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 promises uh, that were already there in the 50s and then uh, the the period of disillusion that we went through in the 60s and 70s when expert systems came along, the idea that it's basically impossible to have uh, this dream of general intelligence, general artificial intelligence, when basically uh, the machine, let's call it the machine, can mimic any aspect of human cognition. I also read a lot about the critiques uh, especially the Dreyfus uh, brothers, uh, who wrote a book in the 80s where basically AI was uh, the project, not AI. Because here we should distinguish between the technology, the piece of technology, the tool, uh, the tools derived from the technology, and uh, the sort of imaginaries, what we, what we think the tool uh, and the technology can deliver. And I would say that uh, their book, I mean, the Dreyfus brothers' book was... was uh, was to me the last word in relation to the debate around the general intelligent issue. You know, artificial intelligence doesn't have a body, doesn't have consciousness, doesn't have many attributes that human cognition has. Therefore, I wasn't very interested in this aspect. I wasn't, I wasn't very much interested in the singularity issue, which is another, which is another uh, thing that we can discuss, whether we are entering into a new stage of human evolution. So, so for me, there's very little excitement. I also tried out uh, this, um, one of the tools powered by AI, which is uh, uh, text-to-image. So you basically write something and then an image is generated. I felt that maybe the, the, the application that I tried out wasn't particularly good, but I felt that it was a little bit... It was fully fake. I mean, the images were not interesting at all. Uh, however, I've um, I've watched several videos in which photographers were quite uh, worried about uh, the fate of photography itself because there are actually applications which I've never tried are able to basically reproduce uh, uh, photos, and and they were quite qu- quite good photos. So, so they, so photographers felt uh, feel threatened by this, especially when you do this stock image uh, kind of photography. This is sort of highly stereotype kind of pictures and photos. That might be something certainly threatened by 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 AI and all these applications. But yes, in general, I feel much more positive towards VR rather than AI, because I think that VR is like a a media technology, you know, it's like cameras, microphones, I mean, something for, for, for our own uh, creative expression. AI could be used for that as well. But I see that the, the, the imaginary uh, uh, within which we are operating is pretty much related to AI replacing something that we normally do, which, which is realistic. I think that this is already happening. However, I haven't seen uh, an alternative to this uh, replacement perspective. 
we can call it this way. So I don't really feel, I mean, of course there are some people also in educational technology advocating a different kind of, uh, yeah, imaginary, I would call it imaginary, something that we imagine it could be happening. And yet I think that the replacement imaginary, the replacement perspective, again, AI replacing something that we do is, is, is the only game in town. And that's why I think that we have to be worried <laughs> because we might end up replacing something and uh, degrading it, uh, especially around everything that involves uh, the application of judgment. And uh, yeah, so this is, these, these are my thoughts as a, as, a, as a reaction to yours. So yes, I think that we are probably a little bit less optimistic than with other technologies, VR, AI, uh, sorry, VI, uh, sorry, VR and AR. I feel way less uh, excited. Yeah. But of so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there's so there's so much there, and it's fascinating because uh, where to start? Firstly, uh, it's very interesting that something written in the eighties you think has the final word on. <laughs> And I've just started to go back in time <clears throat> because also related to my interest in AI, I've become interested in the ethics of AI, which means I've become more systematically interested in ethics, which means I've become more systematically interested in philosophy, <laughs> which means I've gone back to Plato and Aristotle and so on. And I guess as a trained philosopher, you might have the good reason to believe that something written in the 80s is able to have the final word on something that is still in development today. So that there might be a perspective where that's why you can see this book by these brothers, I can't remember Dreyfus. their name. Has uh, the, no, Dreyfus. The, the Dreyfus, Dreyfus brothers. Dreyfus, yeah. <coughs> Dreyfus. Okay, so, so that's, yeah, so that's an interesting, interesting comment that it's, that it's possible. I think one argument, and this is how Sam Harris puts it, for why we, why he thinks we will inevitably get to artificial general intelligence, which is basically an intelligent being able to reach human level intelligence on all systems, on all um, domains. Let's say he goes if we if we continue to make, and this is imagining we don't blow ourselves up through nuclear war. All we need to do is make incremental progress at the problem of develop developing ai systems we will eventually get to an artificial general intelligence and i i argument i understand there's obviously arguments against that point but that's convincing to me we i i think that we're going to eventually get there now the time frame is difficult to imagine. Five years, 20 years, 100 years, I'm not sure. But I think eventually we'll get there just because we're going to slowly but surely make progress as we have from the 50s. Another thing that I think, another reason why I'm excited about AI is because like you mentioned, certain replacement technologies, uh, replacement AI technologies can help develop what we don't have yet in 
something like a virtual reality environment. So being able to develop at the click of a button using words describing a 3D object that we want created instantaneously and then having that interact, be able to import that as an object into a VR environment, I mean, it unlocks, it just unlocks the potential that VR has much more quickly than we would typically have to wait for. Like we waited for the internet, let's say, to offer us all of these advantages, but it took, you know, decades to really mature. But with AI, we don't, we won't need to wait those decades, even though we, I guess you could argue we already have waited decades for this VR to mature. Not to mention also AI agents within a virtual reality environment, which people can interact with in a real seemingly convincing way. And it's not as, obviously it's scripted in some sense, but it's not scripted in the same sense as we know as our scripted agent today. And I also think maybe if you jump onto OpenAI, create a username and test out the chat, AI chat GPT, I think you may have a different perspective about its value. And maybe some of these these good text to image creation tools because they're like stock photos are dead. Uh, it's always difficult to say that that's people for, for, like it completely replaces a um, certain work type of work, but it, it seems that that's going to be the case. But there are certain certain domains, uh, certain business domains that would be wiped <clears throat> out. I mean, I can <laughs> contract law even looks yeah. a bit iffy. Yeah, but the problem here is that I mean we haven't defined what AI is. No. Yeah. And 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 I think and this is something that we can easily do. What it's what is hard to accomplish in my opinion is to reach a better understanding of what AI is. So we have indeed a definition of AI, but I'm not so sure that we fully understand AI in our context in both in society and also personal life. We have some uh, imaginaries, again, mostly related to AI replacing, <laughs> replacing us in certain practices. You have mentioned some of those. But in general, I mean, you mentioned philosophy, and I think, yes, philosophers, I mean, for philosophers, AI is a, is a, is a very interesting thing to discuss. I would also bring in history, uh, I've never been a lover of history, especially because it, uh, in Italy, where, where, where I was trained, uh, philosophy equals history of philosophy. So we have to go through what uh, Plato and all these old philosophers uh, said. But I think that in this case, it's very important to understand the history of AI, because I believe that conceptually speaking, AI hasn't really changed uh, since the 50s. Conceptually speaking, that's why a book published in the eighties uh, is still still holds water because it's still a good reference for the conceptual debates around AI. By the way, Noam Chomsky has very interesting a very interesting point on AI, and and maybe we could uh, we can we can discuss it a little bit. But in any case, the conceptual bearings are essentially the same. And I think that it's very important to be knowledgeable about the history of this, uh, of this uh, let's call it, discipline. 
So this is the first thing. So especially when it comes to the to the discussion around uh, general intelligence. As I said, I'm incredibly skeptical. <laughs> Even in 20, 30 years, and this is a recurring dream that, you know, in the future we will be able to reproduce some form of general, in- general intelligence. But this being said, another discipline we should look at is cognitive science. And artificial intelligence is considered one of the cognitive science- sciences, plural. And, for example, when you look at... Uh, uh, the 4E cognition. 4E cognition stands for a type of cognition that has, I mean, human. Co- I mean, it describes human cognition in terms of four properties: extended, enacted, embedded, and embodied. So, when we take this as our starting point, AI is very far from reproducing any sort of. Uh, cognitive behavior that we see in humans. That doesn't mean that uh, AI doesn't simulate any of those. And this is, I think, very important because probably we should talk about a simulation of human intelligence rather than artificial intelligence per se. But in any case, so when we go back to this, uh, so, so to me the problem is also related to what is, what is it that artificial intelligence is supposed to simulate or to reproduce, or to represent, or to enact. And, and, and this is where I think, cogn- I mean, th- recent, co- uh, recent theories in the domain of cognitive science can be very helpful, and I think one of the best candidates is the, the 4E cognition. It's called 4E cognition, which is an emergent paradigm, which, which is very, very far from Herbert Simon's uh, and, uh, and Newell's perspective on human intelligence as problem solving it's it's a very it's a very different departure from uh, from uh, from basically the imaginaries as well as theories that we had uh, from the 60s that that we developed si- since the 60s onwards because obviously when you think of ai does it ab- does it have a body so is it embedded sorry is it embodied no because it doesn't have a body is it extended? I'm not so sure, although, as you said, it might be integrated or embedded into wider systems. So probably, yes, it is embedded, in spite of the fact that it's not embodied and it's not extended. And when it comes to the fourth, which is enacted, it, AI is still quite, uh, quite passive, although it shows or exhibits a level of agency that is certainly higher than than in other tools. So we have embeddedment and a little bit of inaction, but we certainly lack uh, uh, the 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 uh, the body. So also biology, therefore, and uh, and uh, and the extension, the possibility that uh, that artificial intelligence is somehow extended across other tools. Beyond, of course, the simple the, the 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 fact that AI will be coupled with other pieces of technology. So, so this is this is, I think, the starting point to me when it comes to the uh, general intelligent issue. Okay, so let me let me ask you. Well, maybe maybe instead, a first comment would be. 
do we expect an AGI to have to follow the same model that humans have in reaching intelligence? The answer is very, I mean, straightforward, no. And that's, and that's why I think that we need to reimagine AI, especially okay. when it comes to the practical, practical application. Also, the name itself is a little bit uh, misleading because there's nothing that I would call uh, intelligence or cognition or also consciousness. This might be seen as synonyms. And that's why I think that uh, the, the application of AI is what we should be after. The practical, so from a yeah. practical perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is Chomsky's take. Chomsky is saying, well, from, from the conceptual point of view, AI is nothing new. It's not also particularly exciting, but uh, if we are interested in its applications, then yes. Especially because of the recent technological developments. Let's, let's assume that we do want to look at the cognitive science perspective and adopt this 4E approach to, I don't know, analyzing. And we say, okay, we're missing the embodiment. Well, let's, let's start with the extended nature can you give it what is how does it, what does the extended nature mean from a cognitive perspective i don't know can you give me a couple of sentences on that well it's in, uh, it's it's very simple human cognition is distributed uh, across the tools that we use including ai okay so this is this is what extended means that our cognition can be extended but by the way uh, you've just mentioned embodiment the body of AI is us, essentially, is our body. Well, I'm also, well, my, other, is... my, my, my main point was that in, if we look at the human mind, if we analyze the human mind as we meditate or as we focus on what's happening, even from, a neuro, even from the neurosciences, do we really know that it needs to have this physical form or does this physical form or the embodiment, does it play the, play the role that we think it plays? So if we think about a paraplegic who is from the neck down paralyzed, what role does embodiment play there? If we think about how particular, let's say a Buddhist monk is able to set themselves on fire and not flinch because they have this muscle that has been developed from years of meditation, in what role does embodiment play there? I don't know the details of the of the concept of embodiment as it relates to the 4E model. I know as it relates to learning particular motor tasks and as it relates to, let's say, learning in virtual reality environment, for example. But I wonder if we can let's say, argue away, let's excuse the fact that the AI doesn't have the embodiment. We could also include it if we put the AI in robotics, for example. And if we look at Boston Dynamics and what they do, how they train up their system, well, that's in embodiment. But, I mean, how, how, does, how does it work from, from, from that perspective? Well, but you've just said... But, but you just said it's a form of embodiment. So here basically we have, I think, two alternatives, or we may call them two alternatives. The first 
is to say that we have developed something that is significantly and also ontologically different from our own cognition. Yes, okay. So this is the first. The second one is to take as the unit of analysis, not AI and, and, and its performances, but the human, human cognition plus AI as a particular and unique form of extension of cognition itself. The two things, the two perspectives may even meet up at some point. Because obviously we may say that we have developed a tool which is now feedback into our own old cognition. So so in this regard I think that I think that we should somehow take those two perspectives together which which also brings us to a very important question which is uh, do we think that ai is uh, something unique in the landscape of tools that we have invented uh, that we have created it if yes what is it that makes it what is it that makes ai special somehow which goes back again to the question whether ai is an alternative form of human cognition or is it something that is going to argument it? And I think here the distinction between narrow and general AI is important because I don't think narrow AI is anything more than an extension. Exactly. I agree. I agree. I agree. And maybe as a... And I guess that's good to clarify. Philosophically... And culturally, I'm very interested in the concepts and the threats and the discussion around AGI. But professionally and maybe, yeah, professionally, I'm interested in the implications of narrow AI on the way we live and learn. Yeah, on our practices. And how we, yeah, exactly. And and at the moment, I think that that I think that's what's changed over the last twelve months for me. These tools that have emerged now can begin to. I mean, pr- probably for five years actually. It's just I've been aware of them. Yeah, you've become aware in the last twelve months. Let's put yeah, it this exa- way. At, yeah, exactly. And the tools have, I've been able to actually jump on. With, on it on online and use it imagine what's possible in the, in the last 12 months obviously I do learning analytics research I'm also aware of sort of data analysis techniques and algorithms but I think these large language models that was really when I was like oh my goodness this is an incredible this is incredible but again it's it's narrow AI yeah, you would describe it as a, as a singularity or or as as a singular experience that you had, the moment in which you got in contact with this new tool. Yeah, and that's the parallel from when I first put on the uh, yeah. Oculus Rift development kit too. Yeah, yeah. There was this moment. I was like, uh huh. But there are. Wow. But there. I mean, there are certain technologies that open up the Pandora's box of our practice. So all of a sudden you clearly see, uh, at least in your imagination first, how 
these tools might actually produce some changes, at least in the way in which we think and imagine learning and teaching. And, and I think that this should be our starting point. I mean, as, as, as researchers, as educational researchers and as educational practitioners. Now, the thing, though, is that while with virtual reality, I'm following you, I see that simulating certain experiences might have a, a huge impact on the way in which we learn and teach certain, uh, certain subjects. With AI, I'm not so sure that I fully understand how the same can be accomplished. Because I think that we are stuck, or at least I'm stuck, with this, uh, we call it replacement perspective, or replacement imaginary. So, so the only way in which we imagine AI, and in, in this case we're talking about narrow uh, AI, could uh, change the practice is in replacing what we generally do. And what is interesting is that even though even those who think that AI shouldn't be imagined in this way, in other words, also in those cases in which this uh, replacement perspective is not adopted, uh, it seems to me that AI is still something separate from us. So, yes, we may cooperate with AI, but we can't Collab- collaborate with uh, with AI, and here I'm I'm making an important distinction between collaboration and cooperation. So one thing is cooperation. One so so AI is helping us. The other the other thing is collaboration, especially cognitive collaboration, which implies a much deeper sense of being together, and also establish uh, some kind of synergetic relationship. Like AI becomes an exta- a real extension of our of our mind, so so much so that we no longer see that we're using AI, which is typical, by the way, of my experience with Photoshop, because Photoshop is using AI. A typical example is uh, how to uh, distinguish the foreground from the background, in case you want to do some some uh, uh, some some fake stuff. That's that's powered by AI. I'm sure about it. And there are many examples of very very simple technologies that have been empowered, that have become transparent, almost transparent I, I, to us. I heard one person say that the minute something becomes, um, the minute an AI type of tool or application becomes so familiar. We don't even notice it anymore. We no longer refer to it as an AI. Exactly, because it has become like the, it has become us. It has become yeah. us. Okay, so you're talking about collaboration and cooperation and the difference. Yeah, I think it still is the case. So, Gary Kasparov lost famously to the chess AI in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, beginning so, of the nineties, eighties? No, eighty-seven. Might be eighty-seven. So okay. a long time ago. A long time ago. You were not born yet. And, uh, I was just Almost. I was just alive. I was one. So today, I think it is still the case that the best chess players or chess teams are a combination of yeah. AI yeah. and human yeah. behavior. Yeah. Now, is that to you collaboration or cooperation? Uh, that's collaboration. That's clearly collaboration. 
because uh, the players are developing strategies and tactics uh, that are related to the fact that they can rely on uh, an artificial partner, which means that they're literally they're, their style is influenced by the presence and use of the tool of this uh, artificial player i don't know how or or artificial collaborator in that case so, in that case we have this uh, hybridization clearly okay so if it's possible in the domain of chess then it should be possible in the domain of learning of well, maybe not learning let's say executing particular both. learning no, no, both. or performance both, tasks both learning learning and teaching because but the problem is whether AI is changing something pragmatically or and or epistemically. And by, by epistemically, I mean the way we know and also we learn in the end. So, for example, if, uh, if I'm using Photoshop, I'm using AI. And I'm uh, relying on something that wouldn't be there without AI. So the products, all the products... Uh, that I push out are already a, a product of this, uh, let's call it collaboration, perhaps, because I see new possibilities that were not there because I wasn't simply able to do uh, certain advanced things with uh, Photoshop, for example, removing backgrounds or, or, or like collage, that kind of thing. So where is your skepticism around the collaboration and cooperation distinction what? if if we can recognize that it seems logical that it's possible in in teaching and learning uh, i think that this is an open question and i think that you posed it quite well so let's suppose that we depart from the idea that it's just mere cooperation and let's assume that we have to develop teaching and learning practices that rely on the idea of collaboration. Let's start from there. Let's start from there. And 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 here we need to we certainly need to develop a different type of imaginary related to the learner, related to the teacher. And also I would say to map uh, those uh, those domains in which we see co uh, collaboration possible. Because as I said, uh, we are already using AI. We are already using it. I it has become transparent <coughs> to us. But what are those things that AI is actually contributing to? Is it, is it, it a direct uh, influence or is it more an indirect influence? Is there a problem with a pure cooperation strategy what do you mean so it seems that we're saying there's a hierarchy of value so a value hierarchy around collaboration and cooperation that's why we, that's why you see that ethics is important yeah if we have a cooperation strategy with particular ai tools which is let's say more surface level or less deep and meaningful However, we yield the results that are desirable. There's nothing wrong with those cooperation strategies. Absolutely, absolutely. That's but but you are now framing the problem as a problem of value. What do we actually value? 
And that's why, I mean, I don't know if ethics is, is, is the right, I mean, I think that we should probably call it praxeology, no, axiology. There is a Greek word that means value, <laughs> okay? So it's about, but, but the thing is that, because to me ethics tends to be too much about uh, guidelines. Yeah, whereas, whereas and act- I think actually values is the term that's used in the field related to these decisions exactly with ai exactly exactly what what is it that we value what is it that 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 we value about learning because as a matter of fact uh, i was reading a couple of days ago the story of uh, sydney pressy who was basically the guy who invented uh, the very first teaching machine well before skinner so he's a guy he's an american guy who tried to produce the first uh, machine, I mean, teaching machine. And then Skinner came after 20 years. And uh, and actually, his machine was working quite well. Uh, it was helping teachers uh, to uh, provide feedback to students. He was basically using the same sort of imaginaries that we're using now. And everything was okay. The problem is that he was reducing learning to basically pushing buttons. And is this, is this something that we value about learning? What is it that we value about learning? What is it that we value about teaching? And then obviously, as you said, if, uh, if the tool is actually, I mean, if AI is helping us with something that is important that we value, then fair enough. Collaboration is enough. We don't need, sorry, cooperation is enough. We don't need collaboration. The question is that probably in, in certain cases we need uh, or we would value collaboration. But this is also a factual and empirical question whether whether certain types of collaboration are possible or whether we will develop new ways of collaborating with AI. Because the thing is that here is a little bit like a catch-22 because AI is going to change something and AI will be changed in turn by the practice that we will be developing or by the practices that we will be developing. So maybe as researchers or educational technologists and practitioners, there is, there is a need to, dis, to determine the values that we hold if there is this symbiotic relationship. If the way we research, the way we act the way we, sorry, what we research, the way we teach, the way we want to learn influences the development of narrow AI systems for education, then we should probably not just leave it up to chance that we research, act and learn in a particular way. Yeah, but the, Which, prob- yeah, but the problem is that if we are dealing with a symbiotic relationship, and this is another key term, a symbiotic relationship, then we would be we will in need uh, to develop ethical guidelines or however you call them that take this symbiotic relationship seriously. So it's not just a matter of designing things uh, so that they comply with our own values because the very same things that we're going to evaluate are going to be changed by AI itself. So this is, this is, the, this is the catch and also the interest because we are basically dealing with uh, something that is a moving target. 
it's something that is evolving. And that's why, I mean, I've started using, you may have noticed it, the word imaginary. And the reason is that I think that we are dealing with imaginaries. And imagine, or, or more specifically, socio-technical imaginaries, because these are not just ideas, but ideas that we developed alongside technology. But the reason why I'm saying that the, the term imaginary might be very important is that is, is because that's what we're dealing with. We're not dealing with AI. We're dealing with AI, our values, our practices, our goals, that, that are then uh, together, they come together the moment in which we imagine things. We imagine how we should do things. What is the best way to accomplish certain things? So this is, yeah... But it's 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 incredibly challenging for everyone, I think, for for and 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 also exciting in this case. The moment in which we pose the question, we pose the question, not when we make predictions. A lot of food for thought for me, that's for sure. Thank you, team, and see you the next time. Yeah, thank you.